Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Guardian Mindset Podcast. And I'm very honored today to have um, one of my mentors with us today, and that's Dr. William Lewinsky, Dr. Bill Lewinsky, who is the executive director, the lead and lead instructor for Force Science Institute, and just really the Mac Daddy of everything Force Science related in my world. Well, first of all, let me say welcome and thanks for being with us today, Doctor. Oh, it, it, it's an honor. And I really enjoy spending time with you. So I'm looking forward to this. Now, Bill, what you probably don't know is that we start out every podcast with a, with a quote. And uh, I look for a quote to show I actually care about our time together. I look for a quote that best describes the person or the, <laughs> the ability. And look, at he's laughing already. He's a little concerned. Um, but I will tell you that um, I couldn't I couldn't stick with one quote for you. I had to actually have two because I just think you're that good. So you need two quotes. So my first one was uh, from Stan Slap, and his is, human behavior is only unpredictable and dangerous if you don't start from humanity in the first place. Meaning, you know, if you if you don't take the human force factors, if you don't treat people like human, which oftentimes I'm sure you and I will talk about, a lot of the issues that I think we're seeing in law enforcement today is that, you know, society has forgot that these police officers are still human beings with the same failure points as normal human beings. But for me, because I do truly consider you to be uh, one of my mentors as a for science uh, certificate uh, graduate and an advanced specialist graduate, I had to go with John Quincy Adams for you. And that is, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. And so I want to start by thanking you for all you've done for the industry for many, many, many years. And, and for those officers that, that don't know Dr. Bill Lewinsky, well, you better know him and you should know him and you better be following forscience.org and getting the newsletter because he does phenomenal work. How's that for a buildup, Doc? Pretty good? <laughs> That's fantastic. And by the way, it applies to you too. We've both been around uh, this long enough and been trying to innovate long enough that uh, I think we both share that. Thank nope. you, Eric. You're very welcome. Much earned. Dr. Lewinsky is, is a leading, I think he is the leading behavioral scientist whose work is focused on intensive study of human dynamics involved in high stress and life-threatening encounters. I'll let you tell him about it. Tell, I'll let, give him an opportunity to introduce himself to all you all and so you could see um, his vast and amazing uh, expertise in the injury. So, in the industry. So, Doc, welcome and uh, please take a moment to introduce yourself to those that are listening. Well, foundationally, I've been, been working at this for a very long time. I have a variety of academic credentials, which we, we don't uh, spend time on, but I've got 11 and a half years of work at university over seven and a half of those at the graduate level. I've got over 50 years in the martial arts and uh, Eric and I were just talking about how long <laughs> I have been spending time around the police profession and we won't go there because <laughs> it makes both areas look old. So. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but um, the, the thing that distinguishes us is that Back starting in January of 1976, I started to look at the human performance elements of the police profession. And initially, it was in the clinical aspects. Uh, we were looking at issues about how an officer felt, what they were thinking about, the perceptual issues. And at that time, we were talking a lot about perceptual distortions. And boy, I wish that was a word that would go away. 
but we were we're talking about perceptual distortions, including time, vision, auditory stuff, etc. Uh, and one of the things that uh, we kept running into was the issue of time distortions. And officers would routinely say about how they they had their weapon at low ready or high ready, and a person had their hands on a waistband. They thought it was a gun, and as the person started to pull that gun, they started to react, and the person shot them before they could shoot back. And that whole time, they were going into a time distortion. Things were slowing down, and they were scrambling to catch up, and the person still beat them. And so in an interest in trying to understand that phenomenon, we started to, to look at the dynamics of action and reaction components and found that no matter what the officer did, they were always behind the curve. That's what happens to a, a reactor, just like a defensive player in any sport, is you've got to play catch up with the, uh, with the assailant. And so we started looking at time elements. And then from there, we went into perceptual issues. And from there, we lived, went into decision-making issues. and. Uh, and in our latest study, which was just last month, we looked at eye scan connected to emotional arousal, connected to expertise, connected to performance, connected to when to uh, investigate and the methodology for an investigation. And so all of those, and we have four different universities working with us on that. So we move from some very elementary stuff, which is the human component, which Slack said that Derek introduced us uh, to begin with, and I know he's vitally interested in and understands very well, uh, starting with the human component and really taking that all the way through to very high-stress encounters and what is the best way to A, train an officer for those encounters and B, to look at the incident and the officer and work with them after. So we've got, we've got the academic stuff. We've got the experience stuff. By the way, the academic stuff, our research is, and I was just looking at the universities. We have connected to over 20 different universities in three countries with the research that we have done. We have over two dozen journal publications ourselves and our teaching faculty uh, for all of our courses have over a thousand scientific journal publications behind them. So we're focused on the human behavior component, but it's got to be from a scientific perspective, not just the experiential perspective, but boy, do we value the exper that experiential perspective. And if I've learned anything, it, it has not been from the research. It's been from the over 3,000 officers that have shared their decision to use force with me and the experience that they went through. And that's totally apart from them force recon guys and the SEAL team guys and the other really skilled sort of tactical athletes that we have worked with. You know, what's amazing to me, Doc, and I've never even asked you this question, but I think it's so innovative and, and you know, every, every company, every entity has that right bulb, that light bulb moment where you say, boy, I think I can make a business out of this. Like, I think, I think the, the country needs this. The officers need this. You know, I've never asked you, but but how did how did that come to you in Force Science? What was the light bulb moment where you said, you know what, holy cow, maybe we can put some science to the application and start to explain to people that it's just not a robotic application, that there's decision making and reaction time and you know and, and all of that. Like I, I've never asked you that aspect, but how, how did how did Force Science come to be? Well, it it actually started with um our very first study on movement dynamics. 
Uh, and we were looking at, we did a study, we had uh, uh, 25 subjects do uh, 10 different motions uh, on assault. And, and you've seen that. That's yeah, yeah, the guy where the guy turns around and runs and put, you know, all that. Yeah. The good old stuff. Shooting, right? turning, turning, shooting. Right. Yeah, the, the, the old stuff. And we published that in a magazine instead of a, a scientific journal. And the very foundation as to why we did that was because at the time, the police marksman, which is where that went, and you have to remember this is decades, no, that's the decades day. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> but at that time, there was no sharing of the internet. And if you put it in a journal, it may have been read by a small number of people and got to nobody in the profession. In fact, I, I was sitting in my office at the university and I've taught I taught for 28 years, directed a law enforcement program, was chairperson of the Department of Government, went to many post-board meetings and set post standards and the rest of that. But I'm sitting in my office at the university looking at all of the journal articles and thinking, you know, I, I don't know a single instructor or investigator or administrator that's read any of that work. And so when we did that research, uh, we chose not to put it in a journal which was instead to put it in a police magazine called the Police Marksman, which at that time had 7,500 subscribers. <laughs> I used to be one. The, That's the... There's <laughs> <laughs> the largest number of subscribers of any police magazine in the world. It's a little different than fantastic. LinkedIn nowadays, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it is. And, and so it went to there. And out of that, I went to uh, Malify, Minnesota Association of Law Enforcement Firearms Instructors, they were interested in this, and so, I, um, and so um, I, I did the full research presentation with them, and uh, I got a call from the Sky Marshals saying, you know, your stuff is fantastic. Uh, we've got a new type of holster and draw, uh, and we think it takes two, 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 and uh, what do you think should be going on in the mind of our Sky Marshals? It was Sky Marshals at that time. Uh, if, if somebody's got a gun that's taken an airplane hostage, um, could they defeat the person? And I, I gave them keys about, uh, what's going on with the assailant and their reaction potential versus the draw potential based on, on the research that we had done at the time. And then we started to get requests and our mission has always been to have an influence to make the profession better uh, and, and to bring the science of human behavior to uh, both uh, training uh, and investigation, but also the adjudication of that. And that's always been our mission. Uh, it turned out to be a business. Um, and it turned out that we have, for instance, one of our studies on, on Academy, um, we, uh, we made 10,000 videos of skill acquisition and perishability. We had uh, literally five very professional faculty for three years running that, two full-time PhDs uh, and two full-time master level people plus a project coordinator, which is, had cost us a million dollars. And that money came out of the business because that's where most of our money goes is into spreading the word like our website and our newsline and the rest of it, but also the advanced faculty we have. And most of it goes into research or into spreading the word. Yeah. And, and I'm I live always... in the same house. Yep. 
I live in when I taught at the university, yeah. three miles, and I got a really good Toyota truck. <laughs> and I really love how, you know, the, the, and you can just tell that the, um, you know, we, we take a lot of harassment and you take a lot of harassment on the fact that, you know, human factors or the, uh, trying to put science to use of force almost offends people. It's like, that it's, it's, it can't be done. And when, you know, and the one thing that is clear is every class that you offer is full and there's a waiting list for a bunch of people to, to do, to be here because we all recognize, and those of us that can be voices are, are clear to be voices that we all recognize that this is an expertise. Um, and the problem <laughs> is that people are not using, I, I like to use the example of a referee. You know, a referee is evaluating a football uh, and a play on a football field, and the referee has the same level, if not greater, skill than the players that are doing the play. And here, mm -hmm. it's kind of the same concept, but in the world we live in, the people that are evaluating the play, um, you know, lawyers, judges, uh, um, civic folk, uh, community groups, whatever it may be, is they don't have any expertise in what they're evaluating. They're evaluating, well, that doesn't look good. And, and the one thing I think, uh, you know, we all agree on is that, you know, force doesn't have a test of whether it looks good in, in that concept. Right. And that must be frustrating to you because you often, you know, get faced with the fact that, well, you don't need science to evaluate force. And, and when somebody says that to you and says, you know, there's no need to have science involved in force. Well, what's your response to that, Doc? Well, in very simple fashion, I'd like to use some of my martial arts experience. Sure. <laughs> but we, That's my we just ran into <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Right. <laughs> we, we just ran into that with the, uh, you know, with the Potter trial. Uh, Potter was, was screaming, taser, taser. Uh, if you look at the paraverbals, the stuff that, that surrounded her words, she was in an emotional crisis. And when we look at the science behind uh, what's termed slip and capture errors, there's criminal justice people, and uh, I won't say who, who is, and there's some experimental psychologists, both of whom have been on national press, saying there is no science behind slip and capture errors. Lewinsky's saying that, but that's not credible science. Uh, and that, that is what frustrates us most, more, more than anything, is those people who should know, don't know. And I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. The science behind that actually started with William James in 1890, who said, we do things automatically most of the time, and it's right most of the time, but sometimes we do things automatically, and they're wrong. And that was the first notation in American literature as the first book in psychology on what later became known by James Reason as slip and capture errors. Two different types of slip errors. There's a slip error in which an automatic behavior uh, falls off the rails for some reason, less practiced usually, while you're attending to something else. And then there's a capture error, which is a form of a slip error uh, in which uh, more practice behavior actually captures what has slipped off the rails. For instance, uh, St. Paul years ago had an officer who shifted holsters from a level two to a level three, and we use this illustration in our cert course about a slip and capture error. 
And he got caught in a uh, in a situation where he had to draw quickly because someone was pulling a, a gun on him. Uh, and he tugged on his holster. And the guy got out of his vehicle pointing the gun. He tugged on his holster. The guy aimed the gun. He tugged on his holster. And then the guy shot him and walked up and executed him. Why was he tugging on a holster? Because he just shifted from a level two to a level three. All the years he spent practicing with a level two and all of the repetition, when he had to, to draw from a level three holster in a crisis situation, he was applying level two, he had mechanics for level two, and he couldn't figure out why it wasn't working because in that compression, you, you're not thinking, you have no time to think. Uh, and he's pushing forward the effort. So St. Paul and Officer die because of that error. And the Twin Cities seems to have forgotten that when that officer does the same type of error. And by the way, there's voluminous stuff. In fact, if there wasn't science behind the slip and capture error, why would Airbus design a whole factory around avoiding errors, including that type of error? if there wasn't a scientific foundation for it and literally thousands of journal articles behind it and textbooks, why would they design all of the cockpits of their airplanes and invest that money and that effort and that research to avoid that type of error if it wasn't significant? Why would the NTSB and NASA investigate uh, accidents with that framework? And, and so, you know, we've got, uh, we've got a rejection of science, even by the experts, because they don't like it applied in the police world to explain things that they know to be obvious acts of malice. Well, like you said, I love your explanation to say, you know, when an airplane pilot, you know, chooses the wrong lever or pushes the wrong button, that's that he did that. But that's not an excuse. But an officer that, you know, in in. You talked about the Potter, which, the, you know, the day we're taping this, the jury's still out and the issues, you know, are just an issue where I've gone across the country and said to everybody, listen, people, this is a training problem. This is a this yes. is a training problem. You know, you're not training your officers how or or to all the officers listening. You're not doing enough of your own work to make sure that that mechanism of the level three holster draw or the transition from a, a less lethal to a deadly choice is, is, is a practical skill. Is that, is that an accurate statement, mm -hmm. doc? Right. There are departments in this country that have changed holsters three times in one year and not even required their officers go to the range and qualify within some very limited, really easy time parameters. And so it's, you know, it's not just the, the scientific community that rejects law enforcement, it's law enforcement rejects the scientific community. I, I get that, and I'll, 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 I'll even make fun of myself. So as you know, I still carry a badge and uh, twice a year I have to go to the range, but I don't carry a gun every day. I don't, I have a level three holster. So I know because more for my ego of not looking dumb in front of all the other officers, the night before range time, I have to unload, make my weapon dry and and draw that weapon, you know, a hundred times, because when that buzzer goes, I don't want to be the guy tugging on my holster and everybody looking at me going, that's why you shouldn't have one of those, right? <laughs> that's what we're talking about. I want officers to realize that that's what we're talking about. The mechanics of what you do every day, uh, you know, it's just like an athlete needs to train off hours. Um, 
you mm-hmm. need to to train off hours. You need to, to spend your time doing that. Yeah. Right. Chad Lyman, who I think was in your advanced specialist class. I'm, I'm not certain of it. We've had so many of them. <laughs> they blend but together Ch- for you now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They do. But Ch- Chad's just a fantastic human performance guy. Uh, um, UFC fighter, uh, force trainer with Las Vegas PD, really understands the science of learning well. Uh, when he left the advanced specialist course, walking out of our office in, in Chicago, he said, uh, is Doc, I can sum it up for you really easy. You're telling us we need to do a little a lot if we really want to learn it well. Awesome. And uh, yeah, and that's an awesome way to phrase it. And, and by the way, the the um, uh, sleep research on REM sleep tells us that REM, rapid eye movement sleep, there's a pattern of, of sleep that we go into uh, in, after we've been in sleep for some period of time. And that sleep serves to facilitate consolidation of what's called procedural memory or motor skills. Uh, It also facilitates consolidation of emotional stuff. We can look at Jessica Payne or or look at some of the research coming out of Harvard Medical School or circadian uh, research labs uh, in the United Kingdom, Oxford and a variety of other universities that are telling us that emotional memories as well as procedural memories are consolidated with sleep. So if you practice them and sleep on it, literally you get up to 20% faster. Walker's got an amazing study out of Harvard Medical School uh, where people practicing something within some parameters before they go to sleep, woke up 20% faster with less errors on that other skill. So you're telling the young ones that they shouldn't stay up all night to cram for the exam. They should study and then go to bed and then they'll take the exam better in college. Is that what I hear you saying about doc? Uh, <laughs> yes. And like you, I uh, crammed most of my too. trying to get better. Right, that's an, I'm going to use that as an excuse on why I didn't do good. So <laughs> now, uh, Dr. Lisky, I've been very lucky to have uh, you as, as a supporter in force science, as a supporter of the use of force summit every year. And, and we are very humbled and honored to have you um, come this year. And uh, just want to make sure also that we do a little bit of marketing sharing for you, which is I just saw, um, you know, we had Vaughn on yesterday. And and I also, you know, the call for presentations went out. And so uh, we told everybody, you know, make sure they sign up for the newsletter and forscience.org. And, and also, uh, you know, make sure they're aware of your pending conference coming up in June in Orlando. Uh, and, and the expertise that that will have. Um, but in, in, your, in our conference, by the way, thank you for coming and attending. Um, oh, boy, it, it was fantastic. That, that was, uh, in fact, if people haven't attended your conference, they have got to go to your conference. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic experience. Well, I just love the fact, and what I truly now enjoy more than ever is that, and I've been telling everybody that, you know, I think our one of the things about our conference is that all the instructors, you know, we may have different tracks in different ways and different applications, but everybody, you know, mutually respects each other and tries hard to mm-hmm. work together. And so, and, and I would like to say that we're all friends on top of it. You know, how many times, mm-hmm. how many times doc, do you go into a conference to teach and you have no interaction with any of the other instructors or anything else you go do your thing and you walk out and it's done. What I love about ours is that, everybody's always talking with each other to try and share the wealth, you know? 
Right. Um, really great. Yeah, you did. So, so we did, do appreciate the plug for our conference. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this <laughs> our conference too. <laughs> it's coming, and, and uh, um, and so at our conference, you you did a presentation on human performance and use of force, and and like I said, the purpose for me for this podcast is that there's probably officers listening that may never get an opportunity um, based on funding or where they are in the department to go to one of your classes or to go to one of my classes. And so if you had to, if you had to, you know, tell a new, an officer what they should know, and they're not going to get a chance to know about them, about human performance. And uh, could you give kind of an overview of what topics you focused on and, and spoke at, at the conference? Well, there's, there's actually uh, three areas that we're really interested in, and I kind of touched on them during the conference, but they all come down to what science has to say about how a human being learns best, performs best, and then needs to be understood within that framework of being a human being. And our focus has always been to understand the human being behind the tool in a time of crisis. So that's usually where we screw up the most. Well, not really, where, where there's serious consequences. We screw up the most in the parking lot at the police station or the uh, <laughs> or the restaurant with backing up right. the number of car crashes. That's why we got rid of Dodge, Dodge Chargers, because everybody has to kept hitting uh, cement barriers with them. <laughs> right, right. But we're, we're looking at significant errors, <laughs> not those, although they may have the same cause. Uh, but if we're looking at something, that there really is a need to practice and refine skills. And a comparison I spoke about at your conference was, um, I, I was just doing a presentation uh, in, in Georgia, for instance, with Chief Deckmars, um, shooting to, uh, to incapacitate versus shooting to stop. Uh, and so I had some time to, to share with some of the Georgia post board people and the academy staff uh, what they were doing and their qualifications. And they have 600 hours, a little over 600 hours for uh, licensure training. And some people go to um, some sort of field training program after, but a lot don't. So it's basically 600 hours for professional practice. Uh, the average in the United States is 840, uh, with a top of 1650 at, at Los Angeles. There is no profession uh, that teaches such important material so poorly uh, as we do in the police profession. It has nothing to do with the passion of the trainers. It has to do with the fact that we have limited number of hours uh, and we teach in a fashion that really doesn't promote the most effective human learning possible. And so we're really concerned with trying to change that. Uh, and either Petco has it really seriously wrong or we do. <laughs> because if you want to trim a pet's hair with pet coat, they will not let you do it unsupervised unless you've had 800 hours of training. And there is no profession uh, upon which the safety and health and well-being of people depend, uh, including the officer themselves, that trains it so little um, and really builds skills in a fashion that aren't retained and that's right across the whole curriculum. Um, and so we literally need to change the structure of the academy. Instructors are, are committed, supervisors are committed. Uh, in fact, the most, some of the most committed people I've seen are people who are trying to train uh, officers in an academy and understand the value and significance of what they're doing. 
but we've got to make a change on that. And if an officer leaves the academy, you have to remember that those skills are up to you to, to keep alive. And Chad Lyman has given us a lesson. Do a little, a lot. Just be conscious about the need to improve. And you can, even when you leave a stop, like a traffic stop, we, we talked briefly about a traffic stop previously. Um, just do a principle that Chuck Remsberg talked about uh, in the uh, Caliber Press uh, newsline. Uh, and in tactical, uh, I think it's tactical, the tactical edge is, he said, just reflect for a moment on what if. Uh, and and so you you actually build awareness and build knowledge and build schematics or brain blueprints about things by your experience within the profession. So you're using the professional experience to grow from it and become better at it. But you have to be aware of it. You have to think and use. Uh, and then when we're looking at, um, so we're looking at training, we're looking at, at officers and then investigators. Um, it is hard for me to understand why investigators will not consider the human performance element. If we, if we look at anybody that investigates anything dealing with any consequences at all in our society, whether it's National Transportation Safety Board, uh, FAA, uh, American Medical Association, um, anybody, uh, any engineering group that investigates uh, errors in construction or any, any, anybody at all. Uh, in fact, we're connected to, uh, to Mayo in a variety of different ways. Their faculty have been teaching with us or we work with them uh, in, in some fashion. And when they look at medical errors and they do the human component aspects, in fact, they have, they have exercise physiologists and, and cognitive scientists that look at what they're doing and the foundation for it and use errors and errors actually in what they're doing to guide an improvement in the profession. And you can't understand what's going on unless you really look at what is a human being using a tool when things go right or go wrong, right or wrong, because you can learn from both of them. And it's good investigators that need to include that. And then the adjudicators need to look at it. Instead of looking at, does this conform to policy and law? We need to look at, is this the outcome we want? And if not, what do we have to change to make a difference? Yeah. I mean, isn't that's a whole different mindset. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I guess that's the, the frustration that we have in the industry, which is if we want to be professional, we call ourselves professional, right? We want to be, we want to have professionalism, but we don't want to use adult learning techniques. We don't want to, we don't want to use, we don't want to be critical and use learning platforms to, to evaluate what has already occurred. And, and, and that's something that, you know, and you said before your experience with, you know, SEAL teams and, and, you know, intense warriors who are doing this at all the time, they're always looking at after action reviews and, and hot washes of right. what happened and what didn't happen for that purpose. Um, so the, the key, right. the key for me is you've had such a unique way to watch this profession grow over a few years. And the key, uh, what I would like to just ask you is, you know, what do you think, in your, if somebody asked you a question like, what were the most significant developments that you have seen in policing over the years of trying to bring this science into its application? 
how, how would you answer that? I, I see an evolving understanding of the profession itself. Um, I see politicians trying to influence in some way with bandage processes to problems that are not well-defined or understood, but they want to settle something because they want to go home and talk about what they've done. Um, <laughs> but, but they're complaining about a problem or trying to address a problem that really has been well-defined, but has some sort of public exposure or some popularity at the time. Uh, and they can feel good about solving. But if we really want to improve the profession, we need to improve it from the grounds up. And and I see a, a beginning of that. And part of it is starting because I see an understanding of the profession for what it is. It's, we, we teach it. Uh, and if we look at it, it, we do a terrible job. Barber, cosmetologists receive usually twice as much training as cops. We don't even want to go anywhere near the training required of electricians and plumbers and compare that to cops. Uh, and that's, that's blue collar trades. Um, and we're a profession with the amount of stuff we do, but not only are people seeing us more as a profession and demanding more of us a profession and eventually we'll rise to that. But there's also a type of profession that we are and we're a clinical profession. And I want you to think of nursing and medicine as models for what we do. Because you see what an officer does when they arrive at the scene as they gather information. They are, in essence, doing some sort of assessment process on what it is that they're experiencing or what other people experience. And they're trying to understand what happened. And then they make a decision about that. Could be called a diagnosis because they're gathering information, assessing that information, and then predicting what is the best way to deal with this situation. And then they're going to implement some form of solution that's appropriate to within whatever the parameters are of the problem they're dealing with. That is a clinical model. And I'm seeing the understanding of law enforcement, not as a profession, but as a type of profession that needs skills, that needs decision-making, and not just about force. In fact, I'm disappointed about how we haven't evolved in the decision-making in the police profession. For instance, if you're working with a survivor uh, of a domestic abuse situation, the decision about what recommendation you're going to make or advise or direct that person toward is actually a decision based on sophisticated understanding of victimology, um, psychology, um, personalities. There's a whole variety of factors that go into that. That's a decision process. You stop a child that, that's hitchhiking on the road, a 12-year-old child that's hitchhiking. Some of the research, particularly in Minnesota, for instance, 50% of the children who are hitchhiking uh, and are runaways are fleeing from some form of physical or sexual abuse. The decision to engage in that child uh, and the type of interviewing process you might use to build a relationship, build some rapport, that's a clinical decision process too. We don't go anywhere near there in, in our police training. In fact, we, we, we built a communication program, for instance, for London Metropolitan Police Department that quadrupled by four times the amount of training they had in communications. And we still didn't get to what we needed to do to build a really good 
communication program for them, but we were looking at the time and limitations in technology and time within the constraints of the academy. Uh, but understanding the decision process and decision training across the spectrum of police behavior, not just force, would really be uh, an important progression. So we're moving along with profession. We're moving better with training. We're, we're changing. Uh, and, um, you know, if you look at some of the people that you had a, at the conference, uh, when, when we look at training, we are moving into the type of training needed uh, for professional skill. Uh, and we're, we're getting there. So we don't need, just, we don't we need to defund then. We need to fund more. <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that out there. <laughs> but I do. Oh, God. I won't even ask you to come. Just, <laughs> oh, that is so. Did, <laughs> the people who are crit criticizing us have no clue about what we do and the problems we face. And that's our fault. Yeah. Well, I, that's, a, that's actually a great point. And the, the point I wanted to make there is so. So let's take into our current situation where we have officers that have gotten their low level of training, like we've talked about, and we're trying to impress that. But now that you add the political application of the 30 states in the country that had reform bills to add legislation into things like exhaust all other means before using force or um, trying to mandate a de-escalation application of that. And, and what I try to say, and I know you're going to be able to say it better, is what effect does that have? by taking something that we have spent so long to train on and to give them the skill set and then throwing in this new rule or application that none of us understand or know what to do with, what does that do to the decision-making for the men and women that are faced with these everyday situations? Without getting into specific people, uh, I was part of a, a uh, information group uh, that informed uh, the Weber bill, uh, and we failed at it. <laughs> but we failed at it for very interesting reasons, uh, because I went in and spoke with, with someone that had, uh, I was speaking with someone that had a PhD in physics uh, and had worked for NASA. And I said, you know, the Weber bill, as it stands, really places too much of a cognitive load on an officer when they're making a decision in time compressed and crisis circumstance. And I was told this person would be difficult. And he went, geez, I never thought about it like that. You see, because NASA spends a lot of time looking at cognitive load. How much working space do we have to make decisions, particularly in time-compressed circumstance? And how can we make it easier and better? Uh, and uh, it's, you know, there are so many professions that look at that, medical professions. We'd, we've been at two uh, international medical conferences uh, by invitation, talking about what we've learned about decision-making in exactly those circumstances, how it connects to the uh, police community and the medical community. Uh, and so when we look at, for instance, the, uh, the Weber bill, which is basically shaping uh, what is happening in all those states, we're really looking at uh, cognitive load issues. It's not just training issues. It's a capacity officer in time-compressed circumstance uh, and there, we're pushing avoid those circumstances as much as possible. But no matter what, ambush situations occur, immediate attacks occur to officers, uh, and we're going to hold that officer responsible for a variety of things. 
And I, I, I think, A, we're not only exceeding training and challenging uh, limits of training, but we're also flying in the face of cognitive load factors in certain circumstances. Uh, meaning the officer does not have enough RAM desktop space in their head computer to process everything that's expected of them when they have to make a decision immediately and they have to sacrifice information because of the need for an immediate decision. And, if, and people just don't understand that. And if they fear the outcome, like in today's world, like if you mess it up, I mean, and, and I don't, and I'm not, and I, I think it would be the same for airline pilots. If we told an airline pilot that you made a wrong mistake, you're going to federal prison for the rest of your life. Wouldn't that have the same effect as it does on our officers nowadays who are now like, wait, I have to make a decision. I have split seconds to make a decision, but if I get it wrong, then, then I, the outcome could be federal prison in, in, in that, that, you're, you're using the RAM as you described, right? And you're not using it positively to resolve the situation. Right. Yeah. yeah that's, right. that's the biggest issue. Yeah. And who'd, who'd want to be a surgeon or a pilot or anything if you, or a police officer, if you're held to inhuman, unreachable standards? And I can understand in some circumstances, I would expect people to consider options. In fact, a lot of our work in the speed of assault is designed to help officers uh, understand the speed of assault so they don't place themselves in situations, if possible, uh, where they'll be there and they have to act. We'd rather have them be safe and have the people they're dealing with be safe, which is why, why we did our traffic stop and why we did a lot of our other uh, study and why we did a lot of other studies is we're looking at ways to keep officers safe and how not to get there. But you know, anytime you have two people interacting, two people are responsible for the circumstance that are there. Right. And we say, don't blame the victim, but boy, uh, cops sure are influenced by the aggressiveness and how people compress time and distance uh, in an assault and create a crisis for the office. And we're not looking at that enough. Well, you know, I know, uh, I know your time is valuable and I'm happy to have you anytime I get. So as we end to the, the wrap up here, I guess I want to give you an opportunity that if you had uh, an opportunity that you get with the people in your classroom, but you, but you had an opportunity to talk to everybody that's listening to this as a young officer or an officer that's, that's going out every day to, to do their job and trying doing it correctly to the best of their ability. Um, do you have any advice that you'd give them uh, and for how to, how to move forward and, and, and be more confident in their decision-making application? Well, um, that's a complex question because one of the things we're looking at now uh, with decision-making deals with actually uh, the visual component of the eye and the orbital frontal cortex. See, you always relationship. use these words and I'm like, wait, what the hell did he just say? Like, for all of you that are listening, I'm going to make this really clear. I left his first five-day training class and went, I feel, I, 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 I had to go do extra research. And, and so I get, um, Jake, just shut me off. There you go. <laughs> uh, 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 but yes. Okay. okay. All right. Start again. There you go. <laughs> uh, okay. We're looking at the eye and vision and emotional regulation uh, and how vision facilitates information. The expert knows how to see things differently than the novice does. They know what, where, when, and how with a great deal of likelihood that something's going to occur. 
and prepping yourself that way to really understand and read situations is one of the most important things you can do as, as an officer. You're a diagnostician. And becoming great at understanding things is really the key to the profession. And then next, being great with your tools, doing a little bit, a lot is really important. But learning how to read situations, I think, is one of the most important skills an officer can leave the academy with. So I would strongly encourage you to, to have a look at that. And the interesting thing we're exploring is reading situations in a crisis situation may exactly be one of the best things we can do for emotional regulation. In other words, you perform a hell of a lot better when you're reading and you know what's going on. It gives you a tremendous sense of confidence and creates alternatives for you. Oh. So it's really important. Your eye and brain are critical for your professional performance. Please grow in that development. And thank you, Eric. No, I appreciate it. And, and one of the things that's very important, you know, we use the very simple phrase, Knowledge is power, and more importantly, I use a phrase that um, you know the why makes the what effective. And you, if you know the skill set of of making a decision versus the application, um, you know this is a. I like the way you say it. You say it a lot better than the rest of us because it sounds really, really good, and it means the same thing. But but it, I, I wish it I could. You explain it so much better than me. You know, but but I, you know, the key is is that. I can't stress enough with all of the people that, that we've had the opportunity to interact with and the fact that, you know, I, I won't, I won't date myself as you won't date yourself, but we had a philosophy back then, which was, if I need to learn it, they'll teach it to me, right? They'll put me in a classroom yeah. and they'll teach it to me. Well, you know, this is a profession that now requires you to spend some time teaching yourself and TikTok and Snapchat is not a teaching mechanism. Uh, you, need to, you need to really dive in. And I do recommend, I didn't get to talk to you about it, but I do recommend to everybody that, you know, Dr. Lewinsky testified at the president's task force for 21st century policing and, and really did a great job of discussing these issues that we were faced with back in 2015 after the shooting death of Michael Brown and the analysis that law enforcement took uh, after that and was successful at convincing some of them that, Maybe it wasn't as, as it appeared to be. And, and as we move forward, you know, with the next segment of law enforcement, the next issue, and, and the one thing, you know, Doc, that we all know is it's just going to be a matter of time till the next one. So they always will be yep. there. There's always ways to evaluate what we do and how we do it. But, but, you know, I thank you for your interpretation and your advice to these young officers that, you know, you don't have to be a, you don't have to be a PhD. You don't have to be an attorney, but you do have to make yourself better every single day. And, and, and unfortunately what I, I interpret what the doc's saying and agree to be that the agencies don't have the capacity, uh, funding, uh, time mm -hmm. to do it the way the army does it, uh, or the way somebody that's a, that has ability to. So you gotta, you, you gotta, you gotta do it yourself. You gotta, you gotta make yourself better. Right. Well, Doc, Eric, I, it's a pleasure to be with you. And, and uh, I consider you part of our team and like to consider myself part of your team. We're absolutely. working together on, on I, this. Absolutely. Yeah. I love how the fact that you continue to push me and challenge me to understand uh, complex things. And, and that should be something that we all get pushed and challenged with on a daily basis. So, Doc, thank you very you're, you're much. You're an easy push. You're <laughs> an easy push. What pleasure working with a bright guy like yourself. So right. thank you. Right. Bring yourself a face in, but that's not true. <laughs>
<laughs> you're a smart dude. Don't <laughs> tell anybody. Thank you. Okay? Thank you. Don't ruin my rep, all right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Harry. All right. And okay. I'll end as I always do. Help those who need your help. Protect those that need your protection. And most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you.